Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami This is the um, new moon day, uh, November the 15th, and um, we had been expecting Lumpur Sumato to be uh, arriving in about a week's time. Uh, should have been Saturday morning, uh, the 21st, but uh, today plans changed. Um, I'm pretty sure most people will have uh, uh, heard the, uh, the news of this. Uh, we, um, while we were gathering for our party moka time this morning here in England, then um, Paul Sumedha was receiving word in Thailand that uh, the uh, king, Rama X, had uh, um, uh, offered him the, uh, uh, the title of Chakun Pram, which is a, um, uh, there's a, a a system of, of ranks that are, are given in the Thai ecclesi- ecclesiastical system, and so that uh, this uh, is the of uh, the five levels of Chakun. This is this is level number five, so it's the top level of of Chakun title, and so this is an extraordinary honor and completely unprecedented, um, and uh, not expected by Lumpur Sumato at all. Uh, so that this sort of popped popped into uh, um, his awareness uh, was announced publicly uh, this morning, and so that meant uh, he needs to uh, revise his travel plans. He'll need to uh, say uh, take part in a ceremony to receive that title. Uh, probably sometime within the next three weeks, uh, but uh, a date hasn't been set yet. But uh, it's an extraordinary gesture of respect uh, and honor for him as an individual and for our community as a whole. Also, uh, along with him being granted that title, then uh, Ajahn Nyanadamo, who's the abbot of uh, Ratnawan Monastery, has been given the Chokun Raja title as well, so that the, both of them are being... Um, they are honoured and uh, say their their practice their their life in the sangha and their their work for the sasana for supporting the um, the religion in Thailand and around the world as being uh, honoured and, and respected in this way. So uh, I spoke to to Lumpur this morning and he said he was still in shock. <laughs> he'd only he'd only heard about forty five minutes before uh, I was talking with him and he said he was still. Still processing the uh, the information, hadn't quite got uh, his mind ar- around it, but uh, it's it's a very great, uh, very great honor and something quite extraordinary. So that uh, along with receiving the the title from uh, from the king, then he'll go also go up to uh, to Wat Bapong, to the main monastery to pay his respects uh, at the um, the uh, the Chetia there, the stupa to to the relics of Lumpur Cha and to the, the Sangha there and uh, 
to uh, also to be probably uh, staying at Wat Banalachat and giving the opportunity for the uh, the villagers of Bungwai and the the uh, community of uh, the International Forest Monastery and the supporters uh, to uh, pay their respects and to express their mudita, their re uh, rejoicing at that um, particular honor. Well, of course, in terms of our lives as uh, as summoners, as uh, monastics, then uh, the these kind of titles are worldly uh, worldly issues. They are not really related to a um, uh, 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 the, the aspects of our of our inner practice, our, our inner training. But they're a way that. One's life, one's work as a monastic uh, uh, is honored by the society. Uh, so in the forest tradition, there are some of the, the elders, some practitioners who would really uh, criticize or avoid those kind of honors or look down upon them and say these are just worldly considerations and should be so dismissed or, or um, should not be part of our lives at all. But it's notable that... Um, uh, Ajahn Chah, who, as we know, was a very, very strict and very uh, orthodox forest monk, and very, I say, assiduous, very thorough, very careful, and thoughtful in in his training and his practice. In the example that he gave, he he made a point when he was offered the title of Chaukun by um, King Rama the Ninth. Then he he accepted it and went to the the palace and received that. Um, uh, as a, an honor from uh, King uh, uh, King Rama the Ninth, and uh, he saw that it's a skillful means so to be uh, to say accepting that kind of a recognition. It's not just is not for you as an individual. It's not just sort of uh, say uh, something that is a gesture of praise for for your own life. But he saw it's also a gesture of respecting and honoring the practice and the the, the style of. Of life and the, the Dhamma teachings that come forth from that, uh, and that that kind of honor, that sort of worldly recognition, it, it's a skillful means. People look up to that. So similarly, many uh, of the forest ajans they wouldn't engage in in blessing ceremonies or even perform funerals, but again, Ajahn Chah would uh, uh, allow that, would uh, and and would encourage us to learn the Paritta chanting, the funeral chanting. So that as Sangha members, we could perform those ceremonies again, not to, to support people's superstitions or just you know, empty customs and rituals, but rather he saw that these are, are skillful means of ways that the monastic order can be, say, uh, uh, a skillful influence, opportunities to uh, say be present in, uh, and uh, invited into the lives of the lay community to offer Dhamma teachings. And to help to inspire, encourage, and uh, say be a, an embodiment of a, a standard of of living, a standard of uh, ethical um, precision, and uh, a kind of um, beautiful say uh, uh, model for people in their lives to to uh, give people an opportunity to respect the qualities of virtue, the qualities of of. Uh, uh, meditative training, concentration, and the qualities uh, of wisdom. So that's how I see these things. And when I've been granted these same kind of titles of a, of a, a lower order than Lumpo Tsumeda has just been uh, given, but uh, I see that it's a, a skillful means. It's a, a way of honoring our community, our, our lives, and the, the practice that we endeavor to follow so that it's a... Um, 
it's in that spirit that I feel it's something that, that's that's very uh, very suitable and appropriate and can be seen as a uh, something that is uh, is skillful, useful, and beneficial in the in the world. So the the prospect of Lumpur Sumedho coming to to live here, he's still uh, planning to come. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, he'll he'll get here within a uh, within a month's time. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, uh, we'll uh, 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 will be kept posted by uh, Ajahn Asoko, his his faithful and diligent attendant, secretary, organizer, and so that when uh, when a a flight is uh, a new flight is arranged for them, then we'll we'll hear about it. So hopefully it'll be within the next uh, three weeks or so, four weeks, uh, that uh, they're able to get here. But it has been, uh, say, uh, uh, bringing to mind Lumpur Sumedho's life, his teaching, and uh, the um, the influence that, that he's had, and also the prospect of being able to help support him, look after him, and have him here in these um, kind of, uh, latter years of his life. Now, 86 years old, and... Um, Less mobile, less uh, uh, less uh, resource, physical resources. He's still uh, uh, astonishingly clear and um, and generous in his teachings, and so it's a, a beautiful opportunity for us not to just be able to support him, for also, but also for him to be able to, to support us and to provide teachings and, and guidance and direction for us as a, a monastic community. So it's also made me uh, reflect upon uh, his influence in my life and uh, how um, how I first met him and um, made contact with him. I, I was at Wat Nanachat. I arrived in Wat Nanachat after he had already left. He he uh, departed from Thailand in May of '77 and uh, uh, was already living in London. I actually lived in London, about a mile away from the Hampstead Vihara, and had no idea that the Sangha was there. Um, might even have crossed paths on Primrose Hill or down the, the street in that part of London without without knowing it. But uh, and so I, when I was at Wat Nanachat as an anagarika, as a novice, and as a as a bhikkhu, um, then of course Ajahn Sumato's um, uh, sort of resonances were there. You know, his influence, he'd established the place, and people had a great deal of respect for him. So his reputation was was very much uh, alive in the the minds and in the example that he'd. Uh, he'd given, but physically he was over here in, in England. So it wasn't until uh, after my first reigns as a, a bhikkhu that I, I finally had the chance to, to actually meet him. And um, so his reputation was, was sort of huge. <laughs> and uh, it was a very, very serious, very austere, very demanding uh, uh, teacher. And uh, held a very, very high standard for his, uh, for his sangha. And so there was a, uh, I, I confess, there was a bit of a, daunting feeling and um, I, I'd heard these stories about these 10-hour uh, sittings they'd have at, uh, at Hampstead when they, when Ajahn Sumedho felt there was a need for inspiration. They'd sit for five hours, have a five-minute break and then sit for another five hours to kind of just invigorate the, the community and get, uh, provide a stronger focus for practice. Or In the wintertime when people were, were huddling and uh, sort of... Um, Say sheltering under under blankets and trying to keep warm in the the drafty vihara, he would get everyone up at three o'clock in the morning for cold showers to to begin the day with a, an invigorating blast. So that gave me a certain message: oh, ten hour sittings and cold showers at three in the morning. You know, this this Ajahn is really serious. 
so uh, I didn't know quite what to uh, what to, I would meet when I when I finally encountered him, and I I came back to England. My father had a heart attack uh, in October of 1979, and I came scurrying back from from northeast Thailand. I'd been spending the the rains retreat in a little branch up in uh, Royette province, and uh, I left there and came back to England as quickly as I could. And then after I'd arrived back uh, with my family, then I, I took the opportunity to come down to, to Chithurst. And Chithurst Monastery had only been open for about um, three or four months. The, the community had moved there in uh, June of 1979, and this was October uh, 79 that I went to, to visit. And so my my first encounter with with uh, Lumpur Sumaita was upstairs at Chithurst House, and uh, far from uh, being sort of intimidated by this um, kind of uh, um, very sort of ferocious and demanding uh, authoritarian teacher that uh, that I, something in me had been expecting, uh, there was this extraordinary warmth and friendliness, and uh, there was this uh, say profound quality of welcoming and ease and it was very very lovely and um, encouraging encounter and I can't remember what we we talked about on that first meeting uh, apart from that sense of warmth and friendliness and and how I was completely unintimidated by him <laughs> uh, despite having been intimidated by his reputation uh, the, the presence uh, that uh, I felt that being close to him was was very very warm and friendly and encouraging, and uh, I, I asked for uh, what, what I do remember in terms of advice. I, I asked him, do you, "Do you have any guidance, any advice for me in terms of living with my family?" My my father had had a heart attack, so he was in uh, he was in hospital in in Ashford in Kent, and then as soon as he was off the critical list then my mother collapsed and she was in Pembury Hospital near Tunbridge Wells so that I had two parents in two different hospitals at the same time and which was a, 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 quite a challenge to, to deal with and so I, I asked him so did he have any advice in terms of working with the situation that, that, that I was faced with and he just said don't be difficult was uh, his one piece of advice don't don't you don't make yourself difficult to look after uh, and uh, I, I know uh, that was uh, so practical so straightforward it, it was it was demanding in its own way <laughs> but uh, it was uh, it was very helpful and, and very very simple very practical very straightforward guidance you know? uh, don't be difficult just uh, be adaptable and, and i felt that um that sense of uh, uh, of um, say warmth and friendliness, uh, and also the the quality of, of clear practical guidance is very much uh, say the uh, um, characterizes our inheritance from Lumpur Sumato and both then uh, practicing living with him for for many years. So from that from that time after the various crises with my family had. Um, had sorted themselves out. My my mother and father both got out of hospital, and life and the family had restored itself. And I came to live at Chithurst, kind of about now, from sort of late November uh, of uh, 1979, and then uh, joined the community there and lived with them from that time on. So after that, then I spent about 13 uh, years or so uh, being uh, close to to uh, Lumpur Sumato and and his guidance and his teachings. 
And so there, and very similar to, to being around Lombocha, I felt that there was this extraordinary blend of both rigor, rigorousness, the, the sense of um, uh, Lumpur Sumato being a you know, very uh, you know, orthodox and strict forest monk and very faithful to the traditions of Theravada Buddhism and the, the teaching and the practice, that internally he was extraordinarily broad and accommodating, extraordinarily... Um, wide uh, in his uh, appreciation of, of people's characters of um, in terms of handling different situations uh, uh, the also in terms of uh, appreciating and respecting different spiritual teachings his, his range of, of interests and uh, and knowledge was was uh, uh, amazing uh, very impressive and, and very very similar to to Lumpur Cha. he was very kind of faithful and orthodox in terms of the the practice and the, the kind of style of life, but internally there was an extraordinary uh, flexibility and, and breadth and uh, a kind of uh, multifaceted quality. Um, that uh, similarly, Lumpocha was was very uh, very at ease being with uh, like sort of Christian missionaries or meeting people who were students of Zen Buddhism and, and such like. He was totally at ease and comfortable with uh, with all these different spiritual expressions. And uh, so Lumpur Sumedho similarly uh, was uh, was very impressive in his uh, his range of interests and his knowledge and and what uh, influenced his his own practice and teaching. So that he was. Uh, along with uh, happily quoting Lumpochar or, or you know Lumpu Man, uh, uh, the, the forest Ajans uh, as teachers, he'll be quoting Victorian poets like uh, W. B. Yeats or, or, or uh, Tennyson. Like he would like this kind of season, he would start quoting uh, um, uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. A spirit haunts uh, the uh, the. Uh, uh, the closing months of the year, here amidst these uh, uh, the the yellowing bowers of uh, the English uh, countryside and the the, um, the falling leaves of the English autumn, yeah. and so uh, I learned a lot of poetry, you know, English poetry from Lumpur Sumato. <laughs> Be quoting Swinburne and and uh, Keats and uh, W. B. Yeats, Tennyson, and so forth. Also, I was impressed with uh, how good he was at crochet. You know, you think of this sort of very austere and skilled uh, forest ajan, but uh, amazingly gifted with a crochet hook, doing crochet and macrame. And also how he would uh, uh, was so sort of thoughtful and generous and would be making things for junior sangha members. I remember he made this amazing, very complex bowl cover for one of them. Um, I think it was uh, Venerable... Uh, Tanutomo, uh, when it was uh, he was coming up for his bhikkhu ordination, Lumpur crocheted him this really beautiful bowl cover with Chithurst kind of crocheted in large letters around the the house. I think it had I think it had Chithurst on one side and Jittaviveka on the other side, and you know it took the time and trouble and effort to to make a bowl cover for a for a a, a, a junior a bhikkhu just uh, someone going forth as a bhikkhu as a gesture of, of support and friendliness and encouragement. Um, so there were, it was uh, uh, so very touching and and powerful to me how sort of um, how multifaceted how many you know, areas Lumpur Sumato was really uh, accomplished and and uh, also how 
he uh, could uh, apply the teaching and practice uh, to be, uh, say, uh, available to people, to be supportive of different people, and to, say, to speak in ways that were appropriate to different situations. And, and also, like uh, like Lumpo Cha, he was he could be very surprising, uh, and uh, uh, you couldn't predict exactly how he'd he'd respond to um, to different situations. And uh, that was very very impressive to me. And I remember uh, one time where we had a it was after a patimoka. One of the junior monks was was really kind of fired up and very indignant about something. And uh, was expressing himself very, very strongly, and to uh, to the, those of us gathered around, I, for myself, I certainly had a great deal of, of, kind of inattention, like ooh, you know, and not uh, not sure how Lumpur was going to respond to this, you know, very uh, uh, sort of loud and <laughs> ardent expression of this monk's feelings, and uh, it was really striking to me how. Uh, when when that, that monk had finished saying what he wanted to say, Lumpur spoke from this extraordinarily sort of gentle and and friendly place, saying, uh, "You know, I, I think you need to to relax a little bit. You know, not in a kind of condescending, a nasty way, not sort of patronizing. You know, you, know, you need to calm down, <laughs> but rather it was a, an extraordinary place of of caring and gentleness." And it, it was not what I was expecting at all, uh, and not a uh, 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 say something that you would have have. So I wouldn't have read the situation like that. Uh, but it was really uh, uh, directly uh, from his own, from his heart, and from his own sort of caring nature, and uh, just uh, moved by that. Um, the, the needs of that particular particular moment, and it was extraordinarily helpful advice as well. It really, it was respecting what the, that young monk had, had been feeling and saying and talking about. It didn't dismiss that or reject that. It, it respected it, but it was not in, not intimidated or or, or so defined by that. And I'd seen Lumpocha in, in similar ways, just working with different situations in in ways that you could never guess or predict and. And so that that sense of receptivity and adaptability, uh, flexibility in his teaching and practice was uh, has always been extremely, um, say, inspiring and beautiful to me o- over the years. Also, in terms of the the kind of. Um, Teachings that that uh, Lumpur uh, Lumpur gave right from the the very beginning. I think uh, not. I, I couldn't speak Thai. I couldn't really understand Lumpur Cha's teachings uh, very directly. I very much depended on translation and interpretation. But uh, uh, I feel that in very much in the same spirit, uh, Lumpur Sumedha would would always teach, uh, informed by. You know, Theravada Buddhism and scripture, but very, very much from, uh, say, from his own experience and what really worked for him. And, uh, and so what was conveyed was something that had, he'd applied and, and had, had used and had seen as, as valuable. And he didn't, didn't really mind that much of how, <laughs> how, uh, that might align itself with any kind of, 
classical Theravada expression, but rather informed by what he'd learned from other from the other ajans, informed by what he'd practiced himself, and just speaking from that. So I remember that one of the very first uh, community retreats we had. I think it was sort of in uh, we had a, a just a, the winter retreat was only a couple of weeks long in those days. So in the early 1980, it would have been. And uh, when uh, when he was uh, giving guidance in meditation, then he started talking about listening to to the nada sound, the inner sound. He didn't didn't even have the word the name nada for it at that point. Just called it uh, the sound of silence. Or uh, and the, uh, because he he had, at that point he'd never really read anything about it or heard anyone else talk about it, so he just called it the the sound of silence. But because he had applied that, he'd experimented with it, he found it beneficial, so he started talking about that and teaching that as a, a meditation object. And uh, similarly, uh, uh, the, same, uh, the same retreat, I think it was, again, it's all so long ago, it's hard to <laughs> sort of piece the dates together. It was either in the, the winter of 1980 or the following year, 81. I think it was 1980, because it was in the... Uh, in the uh, what's now the reception room at Chithurst, that was our shrine room at the time, uh, and uh, also using the uh, the method of inquiry into the uh, into the question, "Who am I?" and uh, and that was a practice that he'd learned from the the teachings of Master Shu Yun from the the Charles Luke uh, Chan and Zen uh, teaching, um, the series of, of books by Charles Luke and the. The Dhamma talks of Master Shu Yun that were were uh, recounted in those uh, those books of, of Charles Luke and that uh, Lumpur Sumedho had used as his meditation guidance when he was a, a layman in in Borneo and then in his early years in Thailand. So the, these were were teachings that were sort of not really classical Theravada teachings or even particularly anything he would have heard from other forest ajans, but he'd applied them himself. He'd used them himself, found them to be beneficial, so, so he shared those. And, um, and uh, I think because of his own experience with it, his own ability to explain and to guide and to uh, uh, and say, uh, lead us uh, through those practices, many of us found that extraordinarily helpful, beneficial, and I did certainly my, myself had a very big impact on me and so um that uh that was a one particular approach to to practice that uh, uh that uh, say coming directly from from his own insight from his own understanding that he he uh, shared and uh, and how that and then being able to explain how that works and leading us through that to come to that quality of inner quietness uh, and that say awakened aware quality of the heart that is to be discovered when the say the the mind uh, they sees through the the habits of of conceit and uh, self-view when when uh, sakaya ditti is is let go of when the, using a question like who am i or what am i to to challenge the the habits of self-creation self-view when that falls away uh, what remains and that uh, using that that quality of inner listening, just letting the mind be awake, be aware, just listening to the sound of silence, knowing. And uh, in that moment, the habits of, of uh, seeing things in terms of I and me and mine falling away, 
and so right there, it was uh, it was uh, amazingly helpful and a, a direct practical teaching for for those of us to be able to touch that uh, that quality of realization to to know that that uh, heart which is awake aware spacious bright and free uh, free of self even if for just brief moments so uh, uh, right from those those early years I felt extraordinarily grateful not just to be inspired by by uh, Lumpur Sumedho as a teacher and someone to, you can listen to and delight in the words, but also how when applying those words and, and the, the teaching and, and the practice, it really made a difference in, in your own mind, in your own heart, and you could really test uh, and taste the, the results of, of the, the teaching and know that the effectiveness of uh, that, that practice and uh, so it was one of those for myself a really a very powerful source of faith and uh, say commitment to following his guidance following his advice and to really um say um being ready to to uh, um to attend to his teachings and and a and a great confidence in his role as a as a teacher as a guide a, a great kalyanamita a great spiritual friend well there are many other aspects of, of the teaching that were also kind of unique to his own expression that uh, many of us are familiar with uh, also in that, that early era he'd he realized when he tried to to teach loving kindness meditation uh, in the sort of classical form of of uh, spreading benevolence uh, through various classes of beings all around the world that a lot of people found uh, uh, that was obstructive or, or they couldn't really relate to it. So even in those early years, he was uh, using the terminology of not dwelling in aversion as a, a way of expressing loving-kindness uh, because he, he saw that uh, you know, if you try to like everything, if you if you think that loving is the same as liking, then... You know, you, you're trying to just sugar everything over, and that, and uh, he would use this this kind of analogy of trying to think pink and say this just doesn't work. It's just nauseating and irritating. So that uh, approaching uh, loving uh, loving kindness through that, that principle of not dwelling in aversion, that sense of of dividing out liking from loving, that was extraordinarily helpful, beneficial as as a teaching as a and as a, an example. Uh, also reflecting on, on Amaravati and the, the early years here, and I was thinking back to how where, uh, when the, uh, Lumpur, uh, again, as an example of his sort of um, expansive thinking and being ready to just uh, be guided by intuition rather than... than um, just sort of following a, a very sort of fixed orthodox pattern, or firstly, just being ready to move out of London and to to go to West Sussex, where uh, he knew precisely zero Buddhists in <laughs> the county of West Sussex. Uh, uh, but yeah, being ready to move out of London on faith and to, to set up the monastery there and seeing how well that worked, and within five years of Chithurst being being opened, then to to launch the project. Uh, to have Amravati, it was again an extraordinary gesture, and, and uh, but yet he, uh, it was sort of coming from his own sort of his own intuition, his recognition of how the uh, uh, the the situation demanded a, a broader thinking and a bit of of um, 
a spirit of adventure, as they say, fortune favours the bold, is a, a, a British expression, fortune favours the bold. So he was bold in, uh, you know, even before Chithurst was really fixed up and the place really um, uh, fully livable, he was already uh, thinking in terms of, of expanding the range of, of activity. Also, he, he'd met Master Xuanhua in, in the States and been inspired by his example of setting up the city of 10,000 Buddhas in this uh, former psychiatric hospital in, and, uh, and uh, prison for the criminally insane in Northern California, taken that over and uh, established a, a very large uh, uh, community, monastic community and lay community and schools there. And so uh, uh, inspired a bit by Master Hua's example and also recognizing that we needed a, a place to run our own retreats and a bigger place, for, particularly for the nuns community, then he launched Amravati. That's how um, most people are probably very well aware. That was the, one of the the um, sort of guiding principles or the the forces behind the establishment of of this place. And so, uh, one of the the memories that came to mind was how, and again, the kind of uh, uh, the sort of experimental spirit or adventurous spirit that Lumpur Sameto has always had was that uh, uh, in those uh, early years of Amravati. I came here about a year after it had opened. The, the, the group uh, first arrived in August of 84. I arrived in July of, of 1985. So the winter, in the winter retreat of 1986, January and February of 1986, then uh, Lumpur, um, so encouraged I think by the example of, of Master Hua at City of 10,000 Buddhas and some of us who were sort of very um, zealous uh, uh, who were around at that time, we established a, a, a routine for the winter retreat, which was uh, morning bell goes at three o'clock and group practice through the day till 11 at night. Um, and uh, that was uh, a you know, very rigorous and, and demanding uh, routine of, of formal practice. And uh, uh, there was a kind of take no prisoners uh, spirit. It was just... Uh, uh, and he was giving very sort of encouraging and inspiring, energizing talks. But it was a, a very, very demanding routine. Also, it was extremely cold winter, and the, the um, food supplies were pretty minimal, so that uh, there was a, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of vitamin deficiency and protein deficiency in the community. It was the kind of era where we, when we went to give blood, most of us were turned away because our, our our iron, our iron count was too low, and the, <laughs> we uh, we were not able to to donate blood because we were too sort of anemic to to qualify as blood donors. But anyway, not to to sort of glamorize the, <laughs> the difficulties of that era. But uh, also, it was it was such a cold winter, and also he was encouraging uh, vigor to to a great extent. There were a few monks who literally broke the ice on the pond. The the, the abbot's kuti wasn't wasn't there so it was just the the old school swimming pool was still sitting there in that garden area so a, a few of the the monks and novices would uh, break literally break the ice on the pool in the morning and, and jump in at three o'clock i did it once you're certainly awake <laughs> you're definitely uh, uh definitely awake but you're extremely uh, uh cold and impacted by the the kind of the, the shock to the system of jumping into icy water. Um, but you're definitely not sleepy in the morning sitting after that. 
But anyway, what was the reason why I mentioned it now was that, uh, and even though that was a, an inspiring, also invigorating time for for some of us, it was really impressive how um, at the end of that retreat time, Lumpur made the comment that, yeah, it was kind of um, sort of zealous and there was an energy to it, but he said I don't, I didn't really like the result. They didn't really have a good effect on the community there was so many of the sangha members who were it was it was too much it was too exhausting we we were uh we were really over stressing and stretching ourselves and that uh, a few people might have benefited greatly but a lot of people it was giving the wrong message and just that sense of of more exertion and and sort of piling on the austerities is is intrinsically a good thing and so when we had the the next winter retreat um the following year beginning of of 87 he he uh, he changed the approach completely so we had a much more uh, average uh, routine you know, gathering at five o'clock rather than four o'clock and uh, and not staying up till 11 at night every night <laughs> But uh, it was a, a more of, a, of an even routine, and rather than emphasizing this kind of um, uh, sort of take no prisoners uh, austerities, he was very consciously encouraging wise reflection, and that's where many many of the uh, the teachings, uh, recorded teachings that he gave about uh, dependent origination was from from that era, so eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, uh, those those years. So he was, uh, uh, rather than encouraging just a sort of muscular, <laughs> uh, muscular attack on the defilements, uh, as a, maybe that's a, uh, one way of talking about it, rather to, uh, to take the approach of a, of a more moderate or even uh, level of, uh, of uh, engagement and strongly encouraging the quality of wise reflection and investigation. And then uh, again, he was sort of watching what the results are. How do people relate to that? How does that work? What's the result of that? And then being uh, uh, being aware that oh yeah, this this works for a lot of people. People can use their uh, their abilities to to explore, to investigate, to to think, and to to understand and to apply the 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 practice to these. You know, Principles of dependent origination for and for a lot of us that 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 have been a bit of a mysterious teaching and something that we may be related to as a sort of an intellectual uh, form that you you find in some of the scriptures. But over those years, and uh, Lumpur literally spending like two or three weeks just on on one link of the of the uh, uh, the dependent origination chain, uh, like uh, Avijja Pachaya Sankara or Tanha Upadana Bhava, he would spend days and days, weeks and weeks, just on one little area, going over it, over it, over it, until you could really understand it and investigate it and explore it in in the practice. And so, and then you know, trying that out, testing that out, seeing how people responded, and seeing, yeah, that that has a good effect. So I've uh, again reflecting on Lumpur's style, that sense of being ready to experiment, say following a that sort of ultra-austere energetic example and saying, yeah, okay, that was, it was worth trying out, but yeah, the the result of it wasn't good. And not just sticking to it because of an idea or a, a, an ideal, but saying, no, it's not practical. It doesn't really work well for this group of people at this time, this place. Let's do something else. And then taking a different approach and, and being guided by the, the, the results of that. 
So uh, uh, over the years, I felt extraordinarily um, grateful for for Lumpur's uh, approach in, in that way, and then uh, the the sense of um, compatibility of his teaching with, particularly with the Western mindset. I know he's he's very greatly appreciated for his teachings in in Thailand, in Asia, in, in Malaysian community, and uh, and so uh, so forth. Is a very um, very significant teacher in, in those environments uh, as well. But certainly, for I think for the Western mindset and his approach has been so helpful, so applicable to uh, to those of us who've grown up in the the Western environment, Western education system, and and. Uh, been a, a set of teachings and practices, uh, uh, an example that's been uh, ex- extraordinarily appropriate and fitting for for us, uh, and uh, one of the reasons why that we're such a sort of large group of us who are here, and the, the many dozens of uh, uh, the people who've gone forth, hundreds of uh, people who've gone forth, taken up the eight precepts, ten precepts, uh, and. Uh, the Bhikkhu uh, Siladhara uh, life uh, under his guidance. Uh, maybe uh, just uh, also to mention another couple of aspects of, of his teaching that I found uh, I, I'm referring to a lot. And uh, you know, <laughs> I was giving a, uh, uh, a, a set of talks yesterday for a group in, uh, based in Chicago, the Theosophical Society of, of America. The ex Ajahn Jagro is the uh, uh, John Chianciosi, who was one of the senior monks at Wat Nanachat when I first went there. Uh, he disrobed a number of years ago, and, and he is the event organizer for the Theosophical Society in the U.S. So he'd asked me to do a, a session of teachings uh, for them, uh, which was yesterday evening. And uh, so uh, I found myself uh, quoting a number of Lumpur Sumato's teachings, um, as, as I often do, and uh, uh, the um, particular area that I found uh, extraordinarily helpful, and uh, I think uh, for, for many, many, many people over the years, is his understanding of emotion and uh, the development of the practice uh, around uh, Working with emotional states, uh, so the the the, uh, the kind of thing that he would often encounter, and would, uh, and still you find a lot today is people reading Buddhist books or hearing Buddhist teachings or or uh, having explained to them that uh, if you're really practicing Buddhism properly, you know you won't have any emotions or you you won't ha- ha- you won't experience any kind of um, uh, distressing mind states. And that which uh, he would find um, sort of bizarre or or or, or, or just you know uh, unrealistic, impractical that you know, and or that the aim you know, you're not trying to just emotionally flatten yourself and to become kind of numb or just unresponsive. And but even but with all due respect, many Buddhist teachings have put things across in that way, or that the scriptures have been read in that way, and that it's. Say presented as that uh, the the enlightened mind is one that has sort of you know, almost no emotional tone to it. It's a sort of a a, a great uh, flatness uh, that's there. And and uh, over the years, Lumpur Sumedho's teachings about emotion again back in that that period of the late eighties, early nineties, 
when I was living here with him, that would be such a common theme in his teaching and how that uh, it's not so much about uh, not having any emotions, or that's not certainly not the aim of, uh, of Buddhist practice, but rather uh, to, uh, to find the, the middle way. So you're not trying to suppress emotion or you're not, trying, not wallowing in it or identifying with it, but fully understanding it. And so that uh, that uh, uh, style of practice, where where there are emotions of fear or jealousy or anger or lust or, or uh, resentment or regret, grief, uh, he would talk a, a great a great length and in great detail about how we the the in terms of practicing dhamma, there's no need to be afraid or or, or, uh, or upset or embarrassed about having those emotions. So often, you know, even uh, you know, even today, um, people will say, oh, "You know, uh, I'm feeling a lot of grief. My my partner died, or my my father died, my my mother died. I, I shouldn't, uh, I I shouldn't be feeling. If I was a good Buddhist, if I was practicing well, I wouldn't have all this grief. I wouldn't be so upset. I wouldn't be so tearful." And uh, and it was so helpful for Ilumpo would talk directly about that and say, "That's that's a really a, a wrong understanding. It's not about not feeling grief or sadness or." Or feeling, uh, say, uh, those feelings of jealousy. If the cause for those emotions is there, that they'll 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 arise, but it, it all hinges around the attitude of the heart towards those, and so particularly uh, that sense of of being open to the emotions that we feel, but also uh, f- developing uh, mindfulness around emotion, so that the, the mind can truly. Uh, feel and know the emotional states that appear, but not be intimidated by them. So there can be a wave of anger or resentment. You know, this is an angry feeling, but there's the, the a full mindfulness of it. Is it's fully there, but it's not being picked up or identified with. It's it's seen from a uh, a dhamma centered perspective, a nature centered perspective, rather than my anger problem or my fear problem, or my jealousy problem or my lust problem. Or, my uh, my grief uh, my my resentment and uh in the in his way of phrasing it he would talk about changing the paradigm making a paradigm shift from me and my problems to here is the buddha mind seeing the dhamma here's the buddha seeing the dhamma the awake mind seeing the way things are and uh, again that was such a, a helpful way of relating to emotional states and to to find a, a, a really integrated way of handling the, the feelings of attraction or aversion fear and resentment regret and hope and and so forth the, the different tones and qualities of of emotion as as they flow and they, and arise and pass in our minds and uh, so there was that way of say approaching it on the mental level to to, to in terms of the view uh, Say, this is the feeling of anger. Anger is a part of nature. I didn't invent anger. Anger existed in the universe before I was born. But this is a human mind, a human body. It's capable of experiencing anger. It's capable of experiencing lust or fear or ownership or feeling regret or, or sadness. It's part of the system. And so that recognizing this is an arisen state, here it is. It feels this way. And to to see here is the awake aware mind the the buddha mind knowing the dhamma rather than me and my problem me and my fear problem my anger problem my jealousy problem 
And when that's applied, it genuinely changes the, 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 the landscape, the, the inner landscape uh, where you relate to your own mind, but also how we relate to each other as, as human beings and in a community. Similarly, uh, uh, there's a, a physical uh, uh, aspect to it as well, as long with the, uh, along with the mental or the, the aspect of view, uh, then one of the areas he would also emphasize was how every emotion has a physical uh, counterpart. There's a somatic quality. So when you're feeling jealousy or when you're feeling fear or anger or lust, uh, there's a, a physical uh, texture, a physical tone, and uh, there's sensations in the body that go along with that emotion. And, and uh, he would teach these various different practices to, to bring attention to the, the physical sensations that go along with any kind of emotional state. And similarly, by f consciously feeling those sensations, knowing them, accepting them, uh, to not dwell in aversion to them, to, to really... Uh, to uh, really accept them exactly as they are has also helped to uh, give us the, the skills whereby those emotions could be understood as part of a natural order, just like the, the changing season, the, the, the autumn, uh, uh, say the, 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 the changing of the leaves, the falling of the leaves in this autumn period. Yeah, and uh, it's part of the season. It's this way. There's a coolness, there's a grayness, a dankness to the November weather, the falling leaves, the the yellowing bowers uh, that he, he would quote. <laughs> a spirit haunts the year's last hours here amid these yellowing bowers. There's a tone there. There's a, 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 a quality so that then when we feel... Uh, Fear, where is it in the body? When we feel anger, where is it in the body? What's its, its temperature, its, its vibration, its, its texture? Where is it? How do you feel it? And everyone would, would uh, say, uh, everyone of us experiences those things in different ways. But if we bring attention to that and develop that quality of acceptance, of knowing, uh, receiving those sensations, then there's a way that those... Uh, those emotions, the patterns of emotion uh, are really known and uh, understood and don't bring any kind of burden or stress. The mind does not create dukkha out of any of those emotional states. There's not a grasping hold of them, there's not a pushing away, there's not an identification with them. They're just like the flowing of the weather. It's the, the autumn season, it's, it's like this. There's this kind of uh, somber... Uh, quality, this uh, this uh, cooling, this uh, fading uh, tone that comes with the autumn season, the onset of winter. It's like this, and there's no, the mind doesn't give any wrongness to it, or doesn't see it as anything bad or unwanted, or or that it shouldn't be this way. Another of the the aspects, maybe the, one of the last things to to mention on this score is um, how uh, uh, again uh, display, uh, displaying his own kind of creativity or seeing how things work, like like with with loving kindness, talking about loving kindness as not dwelling in aversion. Uh, he realized when he used the words uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension to translate sati sampajanya. 
uh, again with that same kind of um, practicality and uh, and looking at his own practice, his own his own mind. He thought, well, that's not really accurate, you know, because com- clear comprehension it gives a sense of of uh, like an intellectual understanding. But you can be fully mindful. You can have sampajanya of something that you don't comprehend at all. You can fully know that this is mysterious. You have no idea what's going on, but you're fully aware that you have no idea what's going on. Like you can be in the dark. You know, this is dark. I can't see. I don't know what's happening here, but you can have a a full attunement to that which is mysterious or or, uh, not comprehended. You don't have an, an idea or a clear picture, but you know that you don't know. So in that same period, he started using this phrase uh, intuitive awareness as a translation for sati sampajanya. Rather than mindfulness and clear comprehension, he he uh, coined this phrase uh, intuitive awareness uh, to better convey that spirit of of awareness. Yeah, the mind is awake and is aware, but that, uh, using the word intuitive to represent the that uh, in a way the uh, the quality of of uh, of not knowing uh, and to get, say inclining away from that idea of of a conceptual understanding and again that was a very very helpful distinction to make and he would explain why <laughs> he was uh, say I'm not using this word comprehension because you you can be uh, aware of that which is not comprehensible that which is not conceptually understood or figured out. But we can be aware of it, and, and uh, that kind of creativity and uh, practicality is another one of these aspects of of Lumpur's teachings. That are, again, when he say that, you think, "Oh, yeah, of course." <laughs> over the years, again, over the last few days, I've been reflecting a lot on his teachings and and that what we've inherited from him, uh, and and how often when he would come up with something like that, you go, "Oh, yeah, of course, right? Why didn't I see that?" <laughs> So uh, uh, yeah, I uh, I feel so uh, so grateful, uh, so enormously benefited by that sort of uh, flexibility of his thinking and his ability to to put into words to uh, articulate these these principles and then uh, and then also giving guidance as to how to apply them so that. Uh, you know, I I can't personally. I can't imagine what my my spiritual life would have been like without having his influence, his guidance, his his presence as a a great kalyanamita and a, an explainer and a, a mentor for for my my own spiritual practice. So I feel uh, yeah enormously grateful for everything that I've. So received from his guidance, and you know, I'm, I uh, find myself quoting him in almost every single Dhamma talk <laughs> I give. Not this evening, not just like this evening, where I'm specifically focusing upon him as a, as a person, as a teacher, as a guide. But in uh, in almost every single Dhamma teaching that uh, I've I've offered over the years, um, I'm readily quoting him and using his uh, his examples, his teachings, his practices. Uh, so uh, it's it's really really is genuinely unimaginable how uh, things might have taken shape without his his influence in my life. So I'm uh, extraordinarily, uh, heartfully, 
grateful to have received so much uh, from uh, from his own uh, understanding his own practice his own guidance uh, and i really hope that, uh, that that's something that's uh, say filtering down into the lives of everybody here many of you have never even uh, uh, never even met him or if you maybe met him when he came to to visit for a, a few days or a few weeks over the last uh, number of years but uh, I've not had the chance to be close to him or to, to listen to his teachings or to say be guided by his example. So I'm really grateful to, to the extent that it'll be possible if <laughs> he manages to move here and uh, hopefully that, that'll, uh, that'll work out within the next few weeks. And then also uh, over the, the coming months um, uh, that uh, there'll be the opportunities for people to draw close to him, to hear his teachings and to... Uh, Say to receive his guidance. I think it's a it's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful opportunity, and I'm, uh, I feel extremely grateful that this is things have come about uh, in this way, and uh, I'm very uh, very happy that we're able to provide a, a place that we built the Arogakuti uh, as a suitable living spot for him. So uh, I hope that that um, does indeed serve its purpose as a a supportive living space for him and that uh, he will be able to spend uh, uh, a, a long, long time here and to be of a, an ongoing um, a source of blessings and guidance for our community. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. Mm-hmm.